We're in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 to 17. We're coming to the end of the letter, the first letter of John's letters. And John is, is beginning to close and wrap up addressing the believers that he's been writing to. And if you remember the, the context, just a few verses earlier, verse 13, he shares with us his primary point in writing the entire letter. I write these things to you who believe. Who's he writing to? Believers. You who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why is he writing? He's writing so that believers have confident assurance that they know that by faith in Christ, they are reconciled to God, that they have a right relationship, right standing before God, that the vertical reconciliation between them and God is safe and secure, and nothing can cost us that. That's why he's writing. That's what he says. And what we said last week in the verse, what John said in verse 14, is that because of this vertical confidence before God, we can then walk boldly into his presence and proclaim our needs. We can present our requests. We can present our needs and requests before the God of the universe, our maker and creator. The holy God, we can walk into his presence and present our requests. And he says that if we pray according to his will, which is according to his word, then we can have rock solid assurance he hears us. Pause on that point for a second. God the Father hears your voice, hears your prayers, hears your request, and because we have the confidence, because of Christ, that we can walk into his presence and present our requests, and he hears us, and we pray according to his word, according to his will, we can rest confident he will answer. That's extraordinary. And that's what we talked about last week in verse 13, 14, and 15. Everything that John was highlighting in those verses is about this vertical dynamic, vertical relationship between us and God. That through Christ we are reconciled to God and therefore can speak to Him and He hears us. But as John has done throughout his letters, and he will do this morning in verse 16 and 17, he will not allow us to stay there preoccupied only with ourselves and our vertical relationship to God. Instead, as he's done throughout this letter, he wants us to bend that relationship out into our horizontal relationships in the kingdom family that we're given with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is, this is all, he's done this so many times, is that we are reconciled to God by Christ, but now if we're reconciled to God by Christ, that must be lived out, it must be poured out, it must be shared, it must be communicated, it must, be, it must mean something horizontally in our relationships outwardly. And that's where he goes in verse 16 and 17. Specifically, love-fueled prayer for brothers and sisters in sin. Specifically, love-fueled prayer for our family members that are struggling and entangled in sin. If we care for them, we're intended to care for them physically, we also are intended to care for them spiritually. So that's what he says in verse 16, and we'll talk about that. That's our first point this morning. The second point that we need to see is in 16b and 17, where there's really no good way of summarizing it other than to say John makes a distinguish, distinguishes who he's talking about and who he's not talking about. What he's not saying and what he is saying, and that's our second point this morning, what John is not saying, who he is not addressing, and who he is addressing in these verses. So that's our second point. We'll unpack this and it'll make a little bit more sense when we get there. Verse 16, first, love-fueled prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, sinning a sin is literally how that's translated. If anyone sees or perceives or becomes aware of his brother committing a sin, sinning a sin, not leading to death, not leading to death, that's said three times in the text, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So the first thing that we have to understand is who John is talking about in verse 16. And he tells us, he says it. He says the word brother. 
Throughout this letter, John has written to two audiences with two purposes. He's, writ- he's written this letter primarily to believers. That's what he says in 5.13. That's why he wrote, I write these things to you who believe. So he's writing to the community of faith, the, the, the saints. He's writing to the household of God, the, the family of God, the brothers and sisters. He's writing to believers, and that's who he's addressing here in verse 16. And what John does by using this word is he completely reframes our perspective towards a brother or sister who is in sin. This word brother is is adelphos, and it's sometimes used to refer to to physical brotherhood, but more often than not, the New Testament is referring to spiritual brotherhood. In other words, what John is saying is if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin, if anyone sees a brother, a sister, a family member in the the kingdom of God, we are to think and, and, and understand in that context, that's my brother that's entangled in sin. That's my sister that's entangled in sin. That's my family member that's entangled in sin. John is making sure that we understand that, that he's not talking about just sin out in the world, just who, whatever and whoever and whatever sin we might see in the world. And he's not even just talking about a believer in sin generally. He's talking about the believer who is our brother or sister. He's talking about specifically the family of God, the household of faith. That's who he has in mind. And that changes everything about the demeanor and the attitude and the tone in which we would respond to that person who is a believer who's in sin. John has repeatedly taught us that right relationship to God, this vertical relationship, bends itself out into care for our brothers and sisters. He first said it in 1 John chapter 3, that, that this vertical relationship bends itself out. If we love God as we claim to do, then we will also love our brothers and sisters and meet their physical needs. 1 John chapter 3, 17, 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's a physical care that he's talking about. We should care, and that's what we leap to, and that's what we assume. Yes, absolutely, I should care for the needs of the community of faith, the believers, my brothers and sisters. We should leap to to serve them and care for their physical needs and their physical burdens and, and the things that they're wrestling with. I should leap to do that. But here John's saying, in verse 16... That's not the only form of care that we can give. There is actually another form of care, and that is spiritual care, soul care. That's caring for their spiritual needs. This means that we now have, or intended to have, a great and jealous concern for our brothers and sisters, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says. A great and jealous concern. We, We should be moved and melted. That's my brother that's struggling there. Doesn't that change everything if you view them as family members rather than some stranger? It absolutely does. The more we grow in the gospel, the gospel-transformed life, the more we grow in our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ, the more we want to bend that out into other people's lives and the more we care about doing that. This understanding and this way of praying hit me several years ago in my marriage. I know that some of you think that pastors have it all together. We pray perfect prayers. That's not actually true. It takes us some time to learn some things, right? And my wife shared some things with me several years ago, a particular area of vulnerability, a particular area of temptation. She shared some things with me. And rather than respond with shock, rather than respond w- with attack maybe or, or belittling or, or whatever, I could have negatively responded with, in that moment, I responded with empathy. It was an aha moment for me because my wife shared with me an area that she was tempted, an area she was vulnerable, and for the first time, again, slow learner, I realized my wife also sins. My wife also 
I see some elbows going. My wife also struggles in a particular area, struggles with the temptations of the enemy, the, the, the lies that he might present. My wife also struggles in a particular area, just like me. I, she struggles like me. That changed everything. Now, instead of lifting my sword against her, now, instead... I get to suit up with the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit and go to battle in her defense. It changes everything. The enemy is out to lie, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he's out to do that with my wife, and he's out to do that with my brothers and sisters. And what if, instead of lifting my sword against a brother and sister in sin, instead I said, get behind me and let me defend you against the attacks of the enemy with the sword of the Spirit. Let me pray the word. Let me pray the truth that you have a great high priest and advocate interceding on your behalf before the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. That if you sin, when you sin, instead now you have a great high priest. Lift your eyes to him. Lift your eyes to what he's doing. Oh, Heavenly Father, may she see that. May they see that. May they understand what he's doing on her behalf and on your behalf. It changes everything. I want her, I want you, I want all of us, I want to know that truth and that assurance that John is writing for. And so now instead of attacking a brother or sister in sin, instead I want the love that I have experienced in Christ to be poured out on them for them to not lie in despair in the squalor of their sin. This, is, this changes everything. As we grow in the gospel, we will grow in our love for their physical care, but also their spiritual care. We'll run to their aid instead of run away from. This is actually a, a, something Jesus teaches us in one of the parables that he taught in Luke chapter 15. A very familiar parable, but one that's often misunderstood. In Luke chapter 15... Jesus gives three parables, all of which are building to a point. They're all three connected. We love to jump on the third one, which is the parable of the prodigal son, sometimes referred to. It's really the parable of the two prodigal sons. In that par- those parables, the first is a parable about a lost sheep, and the second is a parable about the lost coin, and the third is a parable about a lost son. The value goes up exponentially as the stories go on. One out of 99, one out of 10, one out of two. How much more important is the lost son than a coin or a sheep? And in the parables, the very first one, someone seeks, someone finds, and there is great rejoicing when that sheep is found. In the second parable, someone seeks, someone finds, and there's great rejoicing when that coin is found. In the third parable... No one seeks. No one finds. And there's only rejoicing because the younger son came to his senses, Jesus said, and came home and experienced the father's embrace. What is Jesus' point? It doesn't end with just the younger son coming home. You know the parable. It, It doesn't end with just the younger son and the father embracing. It moves on to the older brother. And the older brother is not concerned for the younger son. The older brother is only concerned with himself and what he's going to get from the father. All these years I've served you and you didn't even give me a goat. What's his love? What's his purpose? What's his motive? He only wants what the father can give him. He doesn't want the father. And because of that, he does not care about his brother. What do we see in that parable? It ends. It ends awkwardly. Where the younger son did not get an older brother broken, merciful, chasing after him, you and I do. We get the older brother, the true older brother of Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. 
He's not satisfied with us sitting in the squalor of the pigsty. Instead, he chases after, runs after, comes to, substitutes himself on our behalf. When you overlay Jewish family tradition at this time, what you understand is that it's the older brother, the firstborn eldest brother's responsibility to go after a family member that's been ostracized or ostracized themselves. That doesn't happen in the older, in the, in the parable of, of the older son. Instead, he just doesn't care. But where he doesn't care, Jesus does. Jesus is our true older brother who comes to us and he is concerned for us and longs for us and chases after us. Beloved, 1 John 4.11, if we have been so loved by God in Christ Jesus, we ought to also love others in the same way. Is that how you view your brother or sister in sin? Do you, is, does it break your heart? Do you run to them and after them to defend them in their sin from the attacks of the enemy? John says, or Paul says it another way in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, another verse that we sometimes misunderstand or misinterpret rather. In, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. We always, we leap to, that's a physical burden. That means that's a physical need. We leap, need to leap to the physical needs. We need to provide the finances or the, or the care or the physical care, whatever it is, we, we leap to physical. But there's also another dynamic at play. John's teaching us that and Paul's teaching us that. There's also spiritual care, soul care. The language that Paul uses in Galatians 6, 2 of, of a weight bearing down on a brother or sister is, is like literally a heavy load that's crushing them under. And to bear their burden means to get under the load and to lift with all of our might, to strength with our strength, to lift the load and to take it off of them and to put it on ourselves, to bear it alongside them, to bear it in their stead. Why would we ever do that? Because we have a sin bearing Savior who did that for us on the cross, who lifted the greatest load off of our shoulders that we could ever face of sin and death and separation from God, and he bore it on his own shoulders on the cross. If we're growing in Christ-likeness and growing in our love and this vertical reconciliation to God and Christ-likeness, if we're doing that, then we are going to more and more bend that out into the world and we're going to look more and more like Jesus, act more and more like Jesus, sound more and more like Jesus. John has said that in chapter 2, verse 6. What's one way we can do that among thousands of ways? It's to bear their spiritual care, their spiritual burdens, to come to their aid, to come to their defense. This is what John is talking about here. And in that moment, when we pray for our brothers and sisters in sin, we're doing for them what they may not have the power or the will to do on their own. In that moment, they're deceived by sin. In that moment, they're crushed by despair. In that moment, they feel all these feelings, whatever they may be feeling. It may just be obstinate, but in that moment... We're bending the grace of God into their life, saying, please, Heavenly Father, remind them of the truth of the gospel. Call them to repentance. Be gracious and kind. Remember your covenant. Humble them and draw them back to the table. That's what we're praying. That's what we're invited to pray. What does it look like for you and I to get under the weight that's pressing down on a brother or sister and lift it off of them, both physically and spiritually? What does it look like for us to defend a brother or sister from the enemy's attacks? John's teaching us what it first looks like is prayer. That's what it first looks like. And then he says this phrase, If anyone sees a, a brother committing a sin, sinning a sin, not leading to death. We need to remember again, John is writing to believers. He says it in this verse. He says it in verse 13. He said it from the beginning. He's writing to believers. And his primary aim is to give them assurance of eternal life. So when he talks about not leading to death, he's talking about the sin of a believer. John, just a few verses earlier in verse 11 and 12 in chapter 5 says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have 
life. Life is said four times. Those who believe, those who have the Son, have life. Notice how he says it, though, in verse 12, the very last phrase. Why does he say it positively this way or or negatively, but he uses this phrase? Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What's another way of saying does not have life? Death. Why doesn't John just say dead? Because he's trying to point us to where life is found. And those who have Jesus have life, have eternal security, salvation. So when he says here, those who, uh, another way of saying this, this phrase of of does not have life. When he says here in, in verse 16, this brother that sins that does not lead to death. He's talking about a brother that is not spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. He's talking about a brother that has eternal life but has sinned is not experiencing the fullness and the vigor and the vitality and the abundant life that Jesus died to give him. Instead, he's satisfied in the squalor of his sin. He's not feasting at the table of God. Instead, he's feasting on Turkish delight. C.S. Lewis fans will know exactly what I'm talking about. In C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the younger brothers, the youngest brother, Edmund, encounters the White Witch and, and when he encounters the white witch, the white witch says, what would you like to eat? Of all the things that you'd want, what would you like to eat? And he immediately says, Turkish delight. It's just this sugary little piece of candy. And she says, it's yours. And the more he ate, the more he wanted. The more he ate, the more he feasted on it. And to the point it made him sick, to the point it, it, was, it was crushing and draining life out of him. And here John is, is telling us that it is... The, the brother, this brother is not spiritually dead. This brother is spiritually malnourished. This brother's not feasting at the table. This brother is feasting on Turkish delight, the, the delicacies of this world. And he's not satisfied. Instead, life is draining out of him. John is making it clear. Verse 12 all the way down to 21, he's talking about brothers, those who believe, those who know, so that we know. He wants us to have eternal life. In, in the context of these verses, 16 to 17, in two verses, he says three times, the sin not leading to death. Those three times, that phrase is set in the context of text written to believers. John has been clear from the very beginning. He's acknowledged twice already in the very first chapters of this letter that believers, though redeemed, are not perfect They will be tempted. We will be tempted. We will fall. We will sin. 1 John chapter 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Writing to believers. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2 verse 1. If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we do sin, when we do sin, we have an advocate at the Father's right hand, speaking our name, defending his righteousness on our behalf. John is writing to believers here in this verse. And he says, if any of us see, perceive, become aware of a brother, a family member committing a sin, not leading to death... What's he say? What's the first knee-jerk reaction? Point your finger at them and bash them. Kick them while they're down. Go and confront them and tell them how evil they are. That's not the first knee-jerk reaction. He says, ask. Ask. And that Greek word is so profound and so powerful. It is an exceptionally strong Greek word. It means to beseech. It means to plead. It means to agonize and weep for before God. Is that how you pray? Is that how you pray for a brother or sister in sin? Do you agonize for them that they're not experiencing the fullness and the vitality and the vigor of the abundant spiritual life that Jesus died to give? 
Are you, are you moved at all? Are you crushed? Are you devastated? Are you, do you weep for a brother and sister in sin? John's calling us to ask. This is the proper response. The right first response. And why? Why would we agonize and weep and plead before God on their behalf? Because this is what we have in our great high priest. This is what he did on our behalf. In John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer is referred to so many times. Jesus prays not simply for his disciples in that immediate historical context. He prays for you who are believers now. And he prays that God would keep us, would preserve our life, would preserve us to the end for eternal life. He prays that we would know the truth, that we would see him and know that he is the only way to God to be reconciled to him. He prays, he agonizes for you and I, praying for us in John chapter 17. And then what does he do? He prays and he agonizes in the garden before the cross, agonizing to the point of sweating drops of blood. On your behalf and my behalf. Neil, that's not what it says in the text. He doesn't agonize for that. He agonizes over the will of God. What was the will of God for Jesus? To go to the cross, to bleed and die for sinners like you and I. He's agonizing for you and I as well in that moment. And then what does he do on the cross? He agonizes for us. He pleads for us. He pleads for those in that moment, these sinners, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He, he agonizes and pleads for you and I. He agonizes for us. This is our Savior. And if we've been loved in such a way by our true firstborn older brother who is our great advocate before the Father, we are being invited in to act as advocates on behalf. We are not the mediators. We are not the one that gives life. That's clear in the text. God's the one that gives life. But we are being invited, encouraged, nudged along to see that brother or sister in sin, to be moved, to, be, to weep, and to agonize for them. This is what John is calling us to. To remember that Jesus has the ear of the Father and speaks your name into his ear. And because God would be so merciful and so gracious and so kind in Jesus, I can't help but I ought to and I want to do the same thing for you. We love and we pray this way because Jesus did this for us. If we've been transformed by the gospel, if this is true, this vertical reconciliation, and we're moved and melted by that, it will bleed out into the world. It will be poured out into, first, our faith family, our kingdom family, our brothers and sisters. And John's telling us one of the first ways is to care for them spiritually, to, to bleed out, pour out prayer on their behalf. Bringing this full circle... This is the natural reaction. Love for God leads, leads to love for others. And look at the result. God will give him life. God will give him life. The him in the text is the one, the brother, that's in sin. And when we agonize before God, intercede as Jesus has interceded for us, God will give him life, breathe life into him. This, this, this in the context, in verse 14... Jesus tells us that we can have assurance before God, therefore we can present our prayers to God. And here now he's telling us we can present our prayers for our brothers and sisters before God. And if we pray according to his will, he loves and delights to answer that. Well, what is his will for a brother or sister, a child, a son or daughter that's entangled in sin? His will is that they would be restored to right intimate fellowship with the Father. That's his will. That's his delight. And so when we pray and we say, oh, Father, please de defend and protect this, this child of yours, this sister of yours, this brother of mine, that this sister of mine, this family member, protect them, care for them, preserve them to eternal life, call them to repentance and humility, and restore to them the joy of their salvation. He delights to answer that. 
He loves to answer that. That's according to his will. He desires none of his children to be entangled and ensnared and trapped by the enemy. He wants to have them in right fellowship. He delights to restore to them the joy of their salvation. He delights for his children to experience the vigor and the vitality and the abundant life Jesus died to secure. He delights to remain steadfast in his love and preserve his children to eternal life. On, On numerous occasions, I share I share stories about my family all the time. I'm told I have to pay them for the illustrations. I'm going to be broke. So I I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and on numerous occasions, my four-year-old will run into the house from outside when the girls are playing outside. She'll run in, and she's just frantic. She's just, "Ah, daddy, 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 and she's just doing this right here. And she's like pointing, and she can't even speak. And I'm like, what is it, Lassie? I don't know how to read this. What does that mean? And then if I listen... I start to hear the faint cries of my two-year-old outside who has fallen or fallen off of something or skint her knee or hit her head or bumped something. And what is my four-year-old doing? She's advocating according to her father's will. Her father loves to come to the aid and the rescue of her sister. Loves to rush out and scoop her up, hold her close and bring her in and put a little princess band-aid on her. When we pray, we are doing that for our brother and sister. When we intercede, when we agonize and weep, that's what we're doing. And it's in line with our Father's will for them and on their behalf. We know numerous occasions. In Psalm 32, for example, David recounts that when he hid in his sin, he, he's, his bones, he says, they wasted away within me. It was like being drained. My, my strength was drained and sapped in the summer in the desert. It was like being crushed underneath. It was like experiencing death when he retained and grasped and, and clung to his sin. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, recounts longing to chase after sin, yet simultaneously longing to please God. And he, he, he recounts the turmoil and the, and, the, and the anxiety and the angst and the worry and, the, and the, just the, 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 the crushing nature. That's not how our Christian life was intended to be experienced. And that's why Paul lands on Jesus at the end of chapter 7. Oh, who will rescue me from this body of death, this body of flesh? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. In both occasions, they, these, these, David and Paul are expressing what it's like for, for a believer to try to dabble in sin, to make mud pies in the slum when a, a weekend at the beach is offered to them. It, it's, it's what it looks like for us to try to, 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 to get friendly with sin and be near it and to embrace it and to retain it. It's like life-sucking death. And John says, pray, intercede, ask, and the Lord will answer. And he will restore because it's according to his will. Is prayer your first reaction to seeing the sin of a brother or sister? Is it your knee-jerk reaction? Is it the first thing you leap to? Certainly confrontation might be involved. Certainly conversation might be involved. But that's not the first thing John highlights. Those things are certainly, there's scripture to go along with those things. But the first thing is to bend the knee and to beg, agonize, and weep on behalf of our brother and sister. Is that your reaction? How might viewing them as family change the whole dynamic? How might seeing them as, that's my brother, That's my sister. Change the entire demeanor of your prayer or your reaction. How are you bearing the physical and spiritual burdens of of brothers or sisters around you? How are you doing that? Not how are you waiting on others to do that for you. How are you doing that? It's awfully hard to do that when all you have in terms of relationship is a, hey, how are you on Sunday? It's awfully hard to do that, to perceive, to be aware of a brother or sister in sin from across the room. It requires proximity. It requires vulnerability. It requires honesty. And it requires care. Empathy. 
love. That leads us to our next point. The point John is not making and the point that he is making. The point he's not making, the point he is making. We have to deal with this, this sin that leads to death. This phrase, the, the, verse 16b, the sin that leads to death, and the next, I do not say that one should pray for that, has given so many scholars and so many believers so much heartburn. What's he talking about in these verses? What sin leads to death? We, we're so curious, we're so worried, we get worked up over it. What is he talking about in these And so we have to deal with it. He says in verse 16b, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So what we need to understand first and foremost is in the context, because he emphasizes three times the sin that does not lead to death, the sin of a believer whose security, eternal security, has eternal life and has eternal security that does not lead to death, because he emphasizes that three times, that's his point. And because he only emphasizes this sin that does lead to death one time, what we learn by the language and by that context is this is an aside. What he's saying here is that's not the audience or the point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to talk about the unbeliever who rejects God outright persistently unto death that leads to eternal death. I'm not talking about that in this context. That's not what I'm addressing. And that is why Spurgeon captures this as only Spurgeon can. He says, so all unrighteousness is sin, verse 17, and you are warned to keep clear of it. There is a sin leading to death, and wouldn't you like to know what it is? So you can avoid it, avoid it, and go on playing with the other sins in your life. But you're not told what that sin is on purpose that you may, by the grace of God, keep clear of sin altogether. Spurgeon has a point. We're going to take a stab at understanding this, but, but Spurgeon has a point before we go into it. We must see that faithful obedience and holiness, the pursuit of Christ, the, the, the gospel-transformed life is one that grows incrementally in throwing off sin and putting on Jesus. More and more conformity to Christ. That's the gospel-transformed life. And so he, Spurgeon's right. We should pay attention. We should not try to find the line that we can't cross. We should not be like a ninth grader dating. How far is too far so that I don't cross that line and I can do everything else? That's not the Christian life. That's not honoring to God. That is not walking with Jesus. Instead, we look to that line and we say, where's Jesus at this point? You know what? Jesus is walking over here. I'm going with him because he's my master and ruler. I'm a follower of Christ. So how do we understand this phrase? There's really four views that are typically presented or, or, or suggested here. The first, typically, that's thrown out there. It's, a, it's generally Catholic in, in understanding and in the way that it's presented. But there are levels and degrees of sin. Some are more heinous. Some are really, really bad and therefore require really severe punishment. And then some are just... Well, that's just sin. So there's levels and degrees of sin. Another perspective is that John's referring to a person, a believer, who's truly saved and yet loses his or her salvation. I don't think that's consistent with the message of the text, the message of the letter. The third option is this is persistent sin of a believer that requires severe, the severe discipline of physical death. The persistent sin of a believer that requires the Severe discipline of physical death. And then the fourth option is generally put forward, and I think based on the text and the whole context, is more accurate. And that is what's called sometimes the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the persistent rejection by an unbeliever of the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Christ. Or said really succinctly, denying Jesus. I think that's the most. I think that's the option, the best option, based on these con- the, the verse and the context. The language of the verse indicates this, but the whole context of the letters of John, because there's really only one audience that fits that bill, and that's the false teachers that John has said from chapter one, verse six, all the way to ten, who deny their sin, their sinfulness, who deny that Jesus Christ is 
necessary Savior to, to remedy that and ultimately deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Redeemer, Savior of the world. That's, that's John's message he's been saying. That's the second audience he's been addressing consistently throughout his letter. This is the only people that fit the bill of those who consistently reject Jesus. If, if to have life, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life, to remain consistently all the way to the point of death, rejecting Jesus, means we also are still dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. We, are, we will experience eternal death, eternal separation. The only ones that fit that description are the false teachers. They reject that Jesus is the Savior they desperately need. Listen to what 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Elsewhere he calls them false teachers. Sometimes he calls them plural Antichrists. Who deny the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Why is this sometimes called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? couple of places in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, Jesus refers to that phrase, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He, he says that anyone who rejects, Jesus, rejects the Holy Spirit, the testimony, the word of the Holy Spirit, that, that they cannot find forgiveness. What are they rejecting? Well, remember what John has already told us. The whole role and purpose of the Holy Spirit is to lift our eyes to Jesus, to spotlight Jesus. And if you reject the testimony and word of Jesus, if you reject the testimony of the supernatural works, John chapter 5, if you reject the common, clear evidence from God the Father, John chapter 5, if you reject the teaching of Jesus, John chapter 5, if you reject the witness of other believers, John chapter 5, and if you reject the Holy Spirit that's given you this evidence after evidence after evidence, then you are rejecting your only means of salvation. You're rejecting your only means of right, right relationship and reconciliation to God. There is no other out. There is no other option. There is no other means. And so John here is, is addressing that audience, but he's really not addressing that audience. He's trying to say in verse 16b, that's not really who I'm talking about. I'm talking to believers. Why do you spend so much time on it? Because there are so many believers who get really anxious about this who get really worked up and really worried. John is talking about those who reject and persistently reject Jesus and the evidence the Holy Spirit has given that he is the only Savior of the world. So how do we respond? There's this other confusing phrase. He says that I, I, say, I do not say that one should pray for that. That's the latter half of 16b. So is John saying we should not pray for unbelievers? We should not pray for these that reject Jesus? That seems... That seems contradictory to the rest of Scripture. What's, what's he saying here? I do not say. Well, again, this is some confusing language, but the word say means command. It, it's lego, and it means command. I do not command that you pray for that. In other words, I'm not saying you should pray for that. I'm also not prohibiting it. It's just not my point. It's not what I'm trying to address. Martin Luther, so many other uh, commentators suggest and argue He's just, it's an aside, and what he's trying to say is that he's neither commanding us to pray for them, nor is he prohibiting us. And so Martin Luther takes a stance. He's not prohibiting it, so our proper perspective is to weep, mourn, and agonize for them. That they, they consistently and persistently reject Jesus, their only means of hope and life and, and salvation. So therefore, we should, we should pray, heaven forbid that be how they die. Heaven forbid that that's how they live their life and they miss the glorious good news of the riches and surpassing riches of Jesus. Heaven forbid that be their state and condition. We should pray as Paul encourages us in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to pray for all people, including unbelievers, that they would see the glorious good news of Jesus and how he's our only means and only hope. So he's neither commanding nor prohibiting. Well, what is he saying then in verse 17? What is his point? If that's not his point, what is his point? Again, he's addressing believers, and I think he's addressing two types of believers. He's done this throughout his letter. This is really important for us to hear just as we close. 
he's addressing two types of believers. The first type of believer are those who abuse grace. The second type of believer are those who despair of grace. The first type, and he, he addresses in the first phrase, all wrongdoing is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. In other words, the first type are those who are looking for the line, who, 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 only, who want to know how far is too far, so they can continue, as Spurgeon says, to embrace other pet sins in their life. And John is making it clear, absolutely not, believer. Don't, brother or sister, embrace pet sins. Don't view sin as secondary and unimportant. Instead, see sin as heinous. See sin as a breach in your intimate communion and union with God. See sin as something to avoid. Get to that line. Look for Jesus and look where he's at. Run with him. He's not at the line. That's what he's saying here in this first half. He's addressing those who abuse grace. Sin is serious. It is all unrighteousness is sin. It's a breach of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. He's raising the bar on holiness and faithful obedience. But that leads to the second group of believers I think he's addressing, and really who he's been addressing all along, and likely the larger group in a room like this and an audience like John's. And that's those who despair of grace. That's those who've crossed the line into sin. And on the other side of sin are despairing and crushed and, and wounded and, and, and just dejected. God could never love me. I, they're listening to the lies of the enemy. They listen to the lies of the enemy who wooed them past into Turkish delight, and they're listening to the lies of the enemy on the other side of that line who's telling them you're worthless. God could absolutely never love you. Who, how, who does that? You're the only person who's ever done that in the world. How could you? I can't believe you. That's what the lies of the enemy. That's what he's presenting. Why? Because he wants to steal, kill, and destroy, drain you of life. And in that place, across that line, crushed and despaired, that this other group, they need to understand the second half of verse 17. But there is sin that does not lead to death. In other words, on that other side, you, you have hoped in Christ, but you've engaged in sin Remember, lift your eyes to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear the good news of the gospel. That there's nothing you could do to get in and there's nothing you can do to lose it. It is all by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lift your eyes to, to John chapter 10 verse 26 to 28 where Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of my hand. That means you are included in no one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And do you know what he adds to that? And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Jesus and the Father, no one can snatch us out of their hands. Do you know what Paul says? We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. That means we have the triple ironclad grip of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and no one can take that away, not even you. Lift your eyes. You have a great high priest advocating for you, the great advocate pleading his case before the Father. Lift your eyes to the second great advocate, John chapter 14, John chapter 16, who's advocating on your behalf, who's telling you lift your eyes from the darkness that you're in to Jesus and never take your eyes off of him. Lift your eyes to John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. You have brothers and sisters right now interceding on your behalf, doing the same thing, advocating, agonizing for you. What hope, what encouragement this is giving us. And that's why he ends how he ends in verse 17 and where he goes in verse 18. If that is the glorious good news that we have, that we have the triple grip of the Father, Son, and Spirit and, the, and Jesus advocating and the Holy Spirit advocating and brothers and sisters advocating, then know that you have a heavenly Father that protects you from an enemy who's after you. You are safe and secure in the arms of God if you are a believer in Christ. Is that your hope? Is that your confidence? Be encouraged this morning. Lift your eyes to Jesus. 
take heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this moment, there are some in this room who have rejected Jesus and the testimony of the Spirit and the evidence provided over and over and over again. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that you crumble the edifice that they've put up around themselves, the rock-hard answers that they think are true. May today be the day they hear the good news of the gospel, repent, confess, do what all believers must do to become believers humble themselves, and hope in Jesus. May they not persist in rejecting Jesus. May it break our hearts. We agonize for them. We weep for them. May they feel the weeping and the agony from us. May they be moved by that kindness and mercy and grace. Lord, there's others in this room that are believers. There's some that are just looking how close they can get while they embrace pet sins, while they don't pursue holiness and reject sin. They're not growing in grace and throwing off sin and putting on Christ. May they see the, the, the words of John raising the level of holiness. Not calling for sinless perfection, but calling for repentance. And for the others in this room who are despairing of grace. May they hear the words of the Holy Spirit. Lifting their eyes to the smile of God towards them. May they turn to the loving, warm embrace of their Savior who says, come home and come to me. I want you. I love you. May they hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May they gain the assurance of their salvation that John so desperately wants them and us to believe. And may they find the freedom and the victory of overcoming the evil one because the battle is already won. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.